Well, amen. Thank you, Luke. And as the ushers are coming by with the offering plates, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and find Genesis chapter 11. Uh, kind of going with a non-traditional Advent text this morning, but Genesis chapter 11. And as you're turning there, I uh, just want to share with you guys, it's been kind of an interesting morning around here. We have a, have a, have, we've had a couple of medical situations, and I just wanted to say thank you. Uh, we have an incredible congregation that includes a medical team, a security team that are already ready to go uh, when those kind of things happen. And so they were on it this morning, and so just pray for those situations. As far as we know, uh, both people will recover, uh, but uh, it's an not lost on me uh, that there's a little spiritual warfare going on this morning because our topic is longing for control. Uh, and so anytime uh, that we plan things out, right, life happens and we have to be ready to adjust. And we're going to see today that control is really an illusion anyway as we move into our Advent series. And we're calling this series a longing for. Uh, so special thanks to Brandon Abbott who kicked us off last week on a holiday weekend with a longing for meaning as we kind of set the stage for this month with the story of Simeon and Anna. The word Advent literally means to long for or to lean in. It means to wait. And so for us, we have to recognize that there are longings in each of us and we have to explore those in the gospel and understand where those longings, uh, where they come from and how we deal with them redemptively uh, and in a Christ-focused way. So this week, longing for control. And I don't know about you, but I've never been uh, accused of being a control freak before. Have any of you? Let's just go ahead and be honest. Confession is good for the soul. Can I get an amen? Anybody a control freak out there? All right, thank you. The rest of you are liars, okay? Let's just go ahead and be honest. That's part of your situation is you won't be honest about your need. to. We all, right, especially this time of year, we fall into the need to control. We feel like life is so busy. It's coming at us so fast. There's so many things to remember. So whether it's the fact that all the lights on the trees have to be perfect, right? My, my yard has to be better decorated than the guy who's next to me. We've got to have the, the perfect Christmas photo, or we've got to have the, the perfect Christmas spread with all of the meal and planning and preparation and the presents, whatever it is that we have in our mind. We are all tempted this time of year to fall into control mode. So when you do, let me share with you three things that you can tell people, all right? Here's number one. I'll put it on the screen for you. I'm not really a control freak, but can I show you the right way to do that, right? Here's number two. I'm not really a control freak. I just know exactly what you should be doing. You might be a control freak if, right? So, and here's the last one. I'm not really a control freak as long as we're doing what I want to do, right? As long as we're doing that, then we're all good. Can I get an amen? What's fascinating is we're going to reach way back to one of the most ancient stories of the Bible today to see and to realize that our control issues have been with us for a long, long time. Will you stand with me in honor of God's word as we look at Genesis Chapter 11, verses 1 through 9 this morning. The story of the Tower of Babel. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley and land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, Come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city. And a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise we will be scattered throughout the earth. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. And the Lord said, if they had begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, 
then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. So come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babylon. For there, the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Let's pray this morning. Lord, this morning we come in the middle of one of our our most hectic seasons of the year. And we confess that down inside all of us is a longing and a desire to control the situation, even if we're honest, to try to control you. And so, Father, I pray today that one of our Advent gifts that we find in the gospel is the ability to recognize that control is an illusion, that we can let go of it and instead embrace your kingdom, your plans, and your way for our lives. So help us to be able to let go by grace and to grasp the reality that when we, we could not get to you, you came to us. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated this morning. So I know, as I mentioned earlier, right now you're thinking, this is not exactly part of the classic Christmas story. Where is this headed? Hang with me, I promise. Because if you want to think about a scenario culturally that matches us today, this is pretty much it. A world in which everyone uses words, but no one knows what they mean. A world in which man is trying to make much of himself with his impressive projects. And so one of the things that we need is a little bit of context. Genesis 11 is the end of the very first section of Scripture. If you look in your Bibles, beginning with Genesis chapter 12, we hear the calling to Abraham. And so thus begins the story of God's people. So this is kind of the first story of the prehistory of God's people in Scripture. And it's put here for a reason. It dovetails, it bookends the the first section of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11, for a reason. If you remember in Genesis chapter 1, the Bible opens with what we call the first commission. As good Baptists, we talk often about the Great Commission where Jesus commanded us to go, but a lot of times we don't read far enough back in our Bible to realize that our God has always been a missionary God. He was always helping people to appreciate, understand, receive his grace so that they could extend his glory. The way that it's put in Genesis chapter 1 is this. God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. To bring his kingdom to bear on the world that he had created. But we know in Genesis chapter 3 what happened. Adam and Eve, not content to be in relationship with God, instead wanted to be like God's. That's the way that the serpent tempted them. And so they took of the forbidden fruit. And when they did, they began to immediately resist everything that God had for them. And so we see mankind struggling to the point that at one point, God had decided to destroy the earth via a flood. He found one man, Noah, who found favor in the eyes of God. One man who was righteous. And so God spared mankind. 
And from Noah's family, he began to repopulate the earth. So in Genesis chapter 9, we get not once but twice the command repeated. Noah's family told to be fruitful, multiply, right, and fill the earth and subdue it. So it's very, very clear. We've heard the command repeated now three times in the opening chapters of Genesis. This is what mankind is supposed to do. But instead... What happens in our sinful hearts? We resist God's plan. Why? Scattering is hard. Building up communities. Farming new farmland. Breaking up the soil. Raising families in a broken world. All of these things are difficult because of sin and because of the brokenness of the world. And so our temptation is to resist God's plan and to try to do things our way. And so that's the story of the Tower of Babel. Our first movement in the story this morning is this, their plan, a stairway to heaven. I'm not talking about the classic rock song, right? I'm talking about the people in what would come to be known as Babel. They had a plan to literally build what they thought would be a stairway to heaven. So after God basically pushed the reset button after the flood, what did the people do, right? It says the whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. These are now all the descendants of Noah. And the people migrated from the east or eastward. Now, if you're a careful Bible reader, you will notice that throughout the first 11 chapters of Genesis, every time people go east, they're getting themselves into trouble. So basically, if you've read your scripture, you know at this point, okay, something is about to go down. It's like kids who are mischievous. They're about to get themselves into trouble. That's what mankind is about to do. And they found a valley in the land of Shinar. Now, let me tell you where that is. If you remember from your civilization class, there's land between the Tigris and Euphrates River that is called the Cradle of Civilization. Shinar became Sumer, which became Babylon, which is today is in present day Iraq. So we're talking about in that part of the world. And so they found this nice little valley place. It was a great place to settle. And so they decided this is where we're going to set up shop. And what did they do? It says they settled. That not, I think that not only means they literally settled there, but it also meant that they settled instead of continuing to pursue God's plan, to scatter over the whole earth. The people said, we've gone far enough. This is a great place to live, right? It's fertile. There's going to be good farming here. We can build up our own city. And so what they're doing is they're following the lead of their forefather, Cain, who built himself a city in an attempt to find himself security. And they had this incredible little technological innovation that they developed, the brick. You see, people in Palestine, there was a lot of stone that you could build with. But now the people figured out, and archaeology, by the way, has verified this, that around this time, people figured out how to make bricks. They were in largely desert area, and so you took that sand, right, you put it together, you packed it together, you fired it in a kiln, and you were able to make a brick. And that meant they could make bigger buildings and bigger structures than they could at any other point before. And so what we see represented is a technological advance. And one of the things that people don't think about very often, right, is the fact that the Bible chronicles many of these advancements in technology over time. And so isn't it interesting that we're living in this time in which technology is exploding. People tell us that now every five years we are doubling the amount of information that we have on hand, information that we know. Whereas in past years it took thousands of years, hundreds of years for mankind to develop. Now because of our technological advances, things are changing very, very rapidly. And yet nothing really changes at all, does it? Because technology itself is values neutral. But what technology does with that phone in your pocket, with that computer screen that you're, or TV screen that you're watching the service on, what it does is, is it magnifies the condition of our heart, doesn't it? 
What you do with technology is telling. Because we can use it for good to advance God's purposes and his kingdom, or we can use it for ourselves. A lot of people in our world, a lot of people in our congregation are on the social media platform of Facebook. You probably caught this a couple of months ago, but Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, had a big press conference and he announced to the world that they're changing the name of Facebook to what? Meta, right? Huge. We're going to invent, we're going right, to create and populate a metaverse. And so it was with some humor that I ran across a Babylon Bee article satirical website says this, God develops ultra-realistic metaverse where people can talk, learn, and work with other people, calling it the universe. (laughs) But it's amazing. We spend all of this time and effort building up our paradigms, building up our various worlds, all in an attempt to do what? To be gods, to be master of our own destiny to be in charge. So the plan of the people there in Babel, they're going to do what? They're going to use this technological innovation of the brick to build a mighty tower. It's going to reach up into the sky or into the heavens is the literal definition. And we know from other civilizations during that period of time that what this building probably looked like was what we would call a ziggurat. It was a steeped pyramid. And the funny thing about ziggurats, because they were built with bricks, they had a massive footprint. They would take the people years and years and lots of money, sometimes a lifetime, to construct these. And the whole point, of course, was to make a stairway to the heavens or a stairway to the gods so that your God could come down. And so they would put this tiny little room at the top of this massive pyramid. And all that was in this tiny room, they would put a little cot there, a little bed, and they would put a little table with a little plate on it. And there would be a priest who would go up and down those steps. This wasn't really a place where the people worshipped, right? This was the place for the gods. And so they would bring a little plate of food, and they would sit it up there so that when the gods were tired from coming to the heavens, to the earth, or back and forth, they would have a place to rest and a little bit to eat. Giant temple. Tiny little god. And this is what they were about. They were going to construct something that looked maybe like this so that they could do what? Here's our second point this morning. Their pride so that they could make a name for themselves. Their pride, right? Making a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. You see, the residents of Babel, they wanted exactly what we want. Number one, we want fame. We want a name for ourselves. We want a reputation. We want to be known. We want to be remembered. In the Bible, this is a theme that is often repeated. I mentioned Genesis chapter 12. Just look across the column there at God's calling to Abraham. Let's look at how that compares to what the people were trying to do. Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, from your relatives in your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will do what? Make your name great. You see, God is the one who makes names great. And that continues, by the way, to be a theme all throughout the Bible. We see it in the story of David where it's God who initiates the covenant with David to say, I am going to make your name and your household great. I am going to put a throne, right, into your household and and upon it a descendant, right, will always sit. And we know, of course, that was a prophecy about Jesus who would come from the family line of David, even into the New Testament. 
In Philippians chapter 2, it said that because Jesus was obedient to God the Father, because he was willing to be crucified on our behalf, God gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that God is the Lord of all. And so we begin to realize that it's not us, despite all of our striving and all of our effort, that makes our name great. It says this in 1 Peter chapter 5. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Why? Because God resists the proud, but gives his grace to who? The humble. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at his proper time. You see, it's God is the one who gives the name. God is the one who exalts the humble and who humbles the proud. And as we know, that's about what's going to happen here in the story of Babel. We want fame. We want security. There's strength and safety in numbers. We get that. But what the people were resisting was God's plan. If they went into the wilderness, right, they're going to have to face all kinds of challenges. As you know, in life, as God calls you forward, It's easy for us to try to resist. Well, God, that's not safe. Well, there's risks involved with that. That's not comfortable. Exactly. Because you are bringing the kingdom of light to the darkness. You are bringing God's kingdom to the kingdoms of this earth. And when you do that, you can't do it in your own strength. It leads you back to what? Dependence on God. And so part of our issue of mankind, part of our control issues... The reality is that we want to be self-reliant. We don't want to have to rely on anybody or anything else but ourselves. And God will consistently put us in situations in which we are overwhelmed. Why? Precisely to teach us dependence on him. I have a mentor who says this. If you're in the water an inch over your head or a mile over your head, you're in over your head. And I would say all of us, right, are to some degree in over our head. And we struggle and sometimes we lash out against God. You know, God, why would you do this to me? And what is God saying? Because I'm breaking you of your dependence on yourself. I'm teaching you that you can only do this by my strength, by my power. And so it's an important lesson. It's the lesson that people are about to learn. Because ultimately, of course, we want to be in control. As I mentioned, this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We want to be gods instead of obeying God. We fall prey to the same old temptation that Eve did. We question God's word. Did God really say? And this leads us to our third movement of the story today, right? Which is their problem, our problem, all of our problem. Disobedience to God's word. I love what theologian John Selhamer says. He says, the focus of the author since the beginning chapters of Genesis has been both on God's plan to bless humankind by providing them what is good and on the human failure to trust God with the good that God has provided. Do you see that? We have our own definition of good. So we pursue it. We try to control it and manipulate it. God says, I've got good for you. I want to give it to you, but you resist. He goes on to say, The characteristic mark of human failure up to this point in Genesis has been the attempt to grasp the good on their own rather than to trust God to provide it for them. And so because of this reality, God has to act. Something has to be done. It says the Lord God came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. 
You see, God's word had been clear. As I told you, not once, not twice, but three times, God had told his people, fill the earth and subdue it. And so at Babylon, God-given boundaries are being crossed. Humans are trying to assert that they are not bound by the limits that God has said. I have a British pastor friend who likes to say this. Christians do the same thing. We tend to keep God around like the British monarchy. Good for show, but with little power. Something to think about, isn't it? We might think government works that way way better, but that's not how God works. And so our problem is disobedience, and their problem is, is that they are united in disobedience. Man, this is one time that everybody's on the same page. All of them are on board with this plan. There's not a single dissenter among them. There's not a single Noah, right? A righteous one among them. When we are united in Christ, that is a good thing. But when we are united in disobedience, that is a terrible thing. And so mankind united in disobedience against God, well, God is going to have to act. Why? Because it's ultimately, and hear me clearly, for the good of the people. You see, God has a plan to bless his people when they're obedient to him. God has a plan and it can't, out be, it can't be outdone by our plan. And it's why this story almost kind of turns uh, you know, humorous at the end. Because when we've got kids, our little kids who are together and they're getting into trouble, they're getting into mischief, what's the first thing we do as parents or as teachers? Separate them, right? You've got to get these kids apart. They're joking around, right? They're on their technology. They're pulling pranks. So the first thing we do, right, is we separate them. We get them apart from one another. And that's exactly what God is going to have to do in this situation, which leads us to our fourth movement this morning, which is God's purpose. The Lord came down. And he scattered the people for their own good. You see, this is the hinge of the whole story. In the Hebrew, it's laced with all kinds of irony and wordplay, meaning it's meant to be somewhat humorous. Then the Lord came down to look over the city. The city, people are doing what? They're trying to build up this massive pyramid, the ziggurat. They think that they're so impressive. I almost thought about constructing a little temple made out of Legos to show you today just to show you how ridiculous this is in the sight of God, right? The God's saying, oh yeah, your temple, man, it's really impressive. I'm glad you spent all this time and money and effort on it. It says the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that humans, literal Hebrew, mere mortals were making. Now it's fascinating. As you get further into world history, you will know that the Babylonians thought who built Babylon? The gods who came down from heaven. The History Channel, if you ever watch those sham documentaries, they'll tell you the aliens did it. But the Bible, there's a much more practical solution. It was men, mere mortals, right? Trying to make a name for themselves, trying to make themselves into a big deal. It's exactly who built Babylon. And so what does God do? By his grace, God will shatter our plans. By his grace, God will disillusion us with the little mini kingdoms and empires that we're tempted to build. By God's grace and his goodness, he will tell us and he will put us in situations in which we cannot succeed. Why? Because he knows it's not best for us. It will simply feed our vanity. It will feed our pride. It will feed our tendency to have a big head about ourselves and what we can do. Now, let me be clear. God created us in his image. Man is created to create. When we do it, and we use the things that we make to glorify and honor him, that's pleasing to God. So as I said earlier, technology isn't bad. 
The question is, is what are you using it for? And in this story, the people are using it for themselves to build up themselves and their name and their reputation. So God won't allow that because he won't allow his people, his kingdom to be diluted. And so he comes down and he does the very thing that they were terrified about. They didn't want to be scattered. God confuses their language and he scatters them. In the Akkadian, which is the language of Babylon, the word Babylon means gate of the gods. But in Hebrew, do you know what that word means? Confusion. Isn't it interesting that all throughout the Bible, the name Babylon keeps coming up every time referring to the kingdoms of men that ultimately break down in fear and control in chaos and in confusion. That story keeps coming around time and time again. So God shattered their illusion, build a stairway to heaven. We can't even talk to each other anymore. Have you paid attention to the world that we're in today? Have you noticed that we're back to using emojis to communicate with each other? We can't even use words anymore. We're like back to hieroglyphics, right? Trying to explain our thoughts and our emotions. And we call this progress. The reality is it's just cycling back to the same things that we've needed all along. That's why ultimately we see echoes of the gospel all the way back in Genesis chapter 11. All the way back to Genesis chapter 1 as we've already talked about. You see, God had a good plan. But sin did what? It corrupted that plan. And so in our sin-corrupted hearts, we want to be gods instead of serve God. We want to disobey commands instead of follow them. The story hits us hard. We can't even really talk to each other anymore. We spend most of our time and energy on projects that may impress man, but do not impress God. We attempt to use technology to create the illusion of notoriety, security, and control. And so the end of this very first section of the Bible leaves us on a note of judgment. There's no hope left to ourselves. We're going to be like a bunch of mischievous kids, right? And we're going to get ourselves into trouble time and time again. So earlier I asked the question, right? How is this a Christmas story? How is this an Advent story? Did you hear it? Did you catch it? Into a world of darkness and brokenness. Into a world of King Herod's and Pharisees and Sadducees and to the world of the Roman Empire, a world that was all about control, was birthed a baby. The Lord came down. You see, Babel is a Christmas story because the Lord came down to us so that we could come to him. We could not get to him on our own. We couldn't build a tower big enough. We don't have technology cool enough. There is no way for us to overcome the distance between us and God, the gap created by our sin. And so God came down to us by his gracious initiative because he saw our brokenness. He saw our confusion. He sees the mess that we've created of things. And so this Advent season, know that. Did you catch how the word come is used in this story? Man says, come, right? Let us together build something, a monument to ourselves, a monument to our greatness. Man says, let's come together to do something for us. God comes together with the Trinity, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit to say, let's do something for man because he's broken and he's in need of rescue. Come, let us go down to them. So would you bow your heads with me this morning on the second Advent Sunday? Because one of the greatest gifts that the gospel could give you this season is to let go of the illusion of control. To identify the ways that you're seeking control. 
It damages our relationships. It hurts the church. And it stunts our witness when we try to control and manipulate things to build up ourselves and our kingdom. So today, would you identify the ways that you seek to control? The ways that you try to control even your relationship with God. And instead, would you surrender to the God who came down to save you from yourself? See, I love the way that the gospel issues the invitation to come. It's another thread that runs from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Hear these words, brothers and sisters, today. God says, come for your benefit and for mine. Isaiah 1, 19, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, and maybe this is what you need to hear this Advent season. Jesus says, come, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So come. And then I love that in the very last chapter of the Bible, this invitation comes back around. Revelation twenty two seventeen. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. You don't have to control. You don't have to manipulate. You don't have to strive. Instead, you can come and confess. You don't have to be a God, but you do have to surrender to one. His name is Jesus, and he came to you. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this moment in which we can confess that just like the people of Babel, we want to build our own kingdoms We want to make our names great. But instead, we can lay all those things down at the foot of the cross, recognizing that just like on that day, you came down to us in the person of Jesus. It's what our hearts truly long for, to be able to surrender and to trust that you are truly sovereign, that you are truly good, that you are in the driver's seat, that you are are in control of all things. So we trust you with that, Lord Jesus. What a great mystery that we love to build massive monuments to ourselves. But you came in a manger. And it's in your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Stand with us as we sing this Christmas hymn together this morning.